0: You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. My name is Bill. If I have not met you yet, I will be down front. I'd be glad to hear your story or answer any questions, introduce myself to you, let you know about the church. We just want you to make yourself at home At the conclusion of the message today, we will be partaking of the Lord's Supper together. And if you're a believer, we invite you to partake with us. So um, uh, make yourself at home here this morning. We are in a sermon series, as you can see, that we've entitled Reclaimed. The title comes from chapter 8 of the book of Romans, which many consider the apex of Scripture, Paul's writings, one of the best chapters in all of the Bible, I encourage you, if you've not done so since we began this series, to bookmark that in your in your scripture, whether you have it digitally or hard copy, and take time to read over that and let that sink in a little deeply for you. The idea is that we are reclaimed and that God works all things for good. The key verse in Romans 8 that you've probably heard many times before is that, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. God works all things for good. Notice what that doesn't say. It doesn't say that all things that God does feels good. God works all things for good. Not all God's workings seem good. Last week, we spoke in the text preceding today's text about the Spirit's work of reclaiming us. We discarded humanity from the realm of the flesh, the Scripture says, to the realm of the Spirit, how we are adopted into God's family. We talked last week, using the metaphor of a of a chair that was stained and torn, and the stuffing was, was, was beat down, and it set out on a curb basically for the garbage man to pick up and throw and put in the garbage heap. But how that chair can be reclaimed and restored to its beauty, and how that's a metaphor for how we are adopted into God's family and what God does in a human's life. But that passage that we talked about last week ended with these cryptic words. It says, since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are sharing his glory, we must also share in his suffering. You know, there are verses in scripture that you just wish weren't there. And that's one of them. Suffering think about that phrase we must also share in his suffering today i want to talk about that and how suffering is a universal experience we all suffer at some point in this life it is a fact of life we're going to go deep in that um Teresa and I experienced this year what many of you have experienced or have experienced maybe now in the middle of it, or if you haven't experienced it yet, you will, and it's the passing of a loved one. Teresa's father was diagnosed with a rapidly progressing form of Parkinson's disease several years ago, and we just watched as this disease took over his body, and as much as we could wish it away and pray it away, uh, it just didn't happen and wasn't going to happen and as caregivers and especially her mother you do all that you can to support that person and to show your love for that person and you push down that sense of helplessness that you have and that feeling of frustration and uh, yet one thing about her father was he never complained he never complained about what he was going through and then back in October after a fall and a broken hip he passed away I read that verse, God causes all things to work together for good. And like you, I have to ask, really? Because I don't see a lot of good in that. I don't see a lot of good in that. I agree with John Ortberg who said that the number one reason that people give for not believing in God is suffering in the world. How can a loving God allow there to be suffering in the world? That's the number one reason people give for not believing in God. And yet when you talk to believers, they will tell you that the number one source for their spiritual growth in their life is suffering. So how does suffering create this sort of divide among people, whether you're a believer or whether you're not a believer? I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. In fact, the scripture talks about it. So why don't we go there? In Romans 8, we know that it begins with, there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. It ends with, we are now more than conquerors to those that are in Christ. But right in the middle of this chapter is this diatribe about suffering. And Paul writes about suffering. Beginning in verse 18, it says, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. So here we see in the middle of this great chapter about the goodness and the grace and the conquering, uh, overcoming nature of being a believer, Paul gives us some lessons on the theology of suffering. And I believe it's really important for us to understand this. And the first lesson I want to talk about today is this, suffering is part of God's plan. That might sound like heresy to you. Because if it's suffering, then it must be the devil. Everything is good is from God. Everything that's suffering is of the devil. We have this dichotomized thinking, this dualistic thinking. And yet, what Paul says here is that God is the one that caused suffering to happen in the world. Think about that. That'll stretch your mind and understanding of God for a little bit. But what we see is, really, Genesis is the origin story of all of human suffering. The first book of the Bible paints a picture of a world that was formless and void. It was chaotic, and out of this chaos, God created beauty and order. And as he continued the creation process, every time he would complete something, there would be this refrain in this poem of creation, and God said it was good. And then the next day, and God said it was good. And then after the last part of creation, God created mankind, and God said, this is the piece de resistance, God speaks French, and he said, it is very good, it was very good. And then God, in this masterpiece of a creation that God created, placed humanity, and it goes on in the next couple chapters, to describe this place called Eden. And there, humanity was placed to tend, to cultivate, to live, to exist, and to exist forever. As long as they were in the garden, they could partake from the tree of life, or the tree of life they could partake of. So So that was where they were. And this garden, there was no shame. There was no pain. We lacked nothing. Guilt was non-existent. Can you imagine just five minutes of living in that kind of bliss? But that was our full-time state of existence. And yet, sin entered. And yes, the serpent tempted. But it was the decision of humanity of us that led us to disobey and be deceived. And the story tells of how after they partook of the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve immediately felt shame. That that beautiful creation of God, that beautiful masterpiece of God was stained. That beautiful chair started to become destroyed. And with that shame, there was this newfound self-awareness that caused them to hide from God. Their innocence was lost. Their hopes and their desires were corrupted. They became self-centered rather than God-centered. Rather than shameless, they covered their shame. Rather than become being caretakers, they became self-protectors. You've heard the song, The Day the Music Died. Well, that was the day originally that the music died for humanity. God banished them from the garden, and that was an act of justice. But think about this. It was also an act of mercy. Let me explain that. The thought of being able to live forever and eat from the tree of life in our fallen state would not have been blissful for shame and guilt and self-protection, would have been an eternal existence for humanity as long as they stayed in the garden and could eat from the tree of life. And so being banished from the garden, being sent east of Eden, was an act of justice, yes, but it was an act of mercy because it was there outside of the garden that death entered into humanity. And that... That existence outside of the garden God promised would be an existence of failure and futility. It would be the existence of heartache and loneliness. And this too was an act of judgment, but it was also an act of kindness. Think about this. Now, this is causing us to stretch our our thinking just a bit here. Because as long as we were content in this world and could live in the existence of our fallen state for eternity, we would never hope for what God ultimately has for us. And so living with the frustration, as Romans says, the futility of our thinking creates within us this healthy dissatisfaction with the way things are and a and an eager hope for the way things God intends it to be. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. It's a fact. All of us will suffer. It is a part of God's plan. But here's the thing. God thwarts our desires and our plans. He frustrates us because God has a better plan. God has a better world. It's the good that we desire is the enemy of the great that God has for us. And so the scripture in the NIV says that God subjects us to frustration. God keeps us from fulfilling our longings and our desires. Because God knows that that would keep us from longing for the best thing that God has for us. Why? Because deep inside of every one of us, our souls are longing for Eden. We want to return home. We want to return to the place that God has for us. Eden Immortality, innocence, and bliss is what God has in store for us. Jesus said, yes, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so here's the thing with this first lesson. Suffering is a universal condition ordained by the creator for the creation's ultimate good. It is for our ultimate good that we suffer in this life. That'll put a whole spin on how you view your sufferings. Lesson number two, your soul longs for ultimate restoration. And you see, that's the thing. That's the longing that's in our heart. That's that's that dissatisfaction that we have that nothing in this life fully satisfies us. One writer said, there is a secret set inside each of our hearts, and it often goes unnoticed. We rarely could put words to it, and yet it guides us throughout all of the days of our lives. The secret remains hidden for the most part in our deepest selves, and it is the longing for life as it was meant to be. It's the belief that just around the corner, just next year, I'm finally going to be at peace someday someday. Someday I'll be content. And we allow ourselves to be corrupted by putting those hopes in a person that we think is going to make us happy. We put it in things that we think that will satisfy us. We put it in a career that we think that will give us the status that we need that will make us fully happy. And yet deep inside of us, there is this nagging sense that this isn't all there is. This can't be what life is all about. So every human being has a longing soul, a longing heart. And even as a believer, that longing does not go away. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is, now I understand what that longing is. And as an unbeliever, I don't understand it. And so I try to fill up that gap, that hole in my heart, with things that are less than God idolatry and it just creates greater dissatisfaction and greater addiction and greater problems this longing is a desire for my ultimate restoration it's like I said the longing for Eden it's the place for which we were created which was created for us and since we're no longer in Eden there will always be a longing in our hearts for that Look at what Paul goes on to say. He talks about how, again, against its will, you didn't choose it. God, it wasn't our decision that we were subjected to frustration, to God's curse. But with eager hope, we long for the day when we'll join God's children. And then he goes on and says, for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childhood, right up to the present time. And we, believers, believers, also grown yes we believers still yearn for that even though we have the holy spirit within us as a foretaste of our future glory for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering we too wait with eager hope for the day when god will give us our full rights as adopted as his adopted children including new bodies that he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we wait for it patiently and confidently. Here's the thing, like the chair that sit out on the curb, we human beings, because of the sin and our brokenness and the sufferings of this world, we feel like we're that stained, torn, stuffing beat out of person that sit out on the curb. But like that chair, somebody goes by and they say, no, I have better plans for that chair. I'm going to claim that chair. I'm going to reclaim that chair. That's what God does for us at our salvation. God reclaims us just as we are. We don't have to make ourselves look good. God takes us just as we are and claims us as his own and takes us into the family. And now we belong to God. But then what does God do with us? He restores us. In one sense, we're restored instantly because God sees the potential inside of us. He sees us through the eyes of Jesus as as if we're that restored chair. But we know that that restoration isn't complete, that we are still a restoration project for God to work on. And that restoration doesn't become finished until we are there in that place that God created for us. It's what C.H. Dodd, the theologian, said, that we live in the now, that we are now saved But we are not yet fully saved. We are not yet fully as we will be someday. And that's what Paul's talking about here is that longing for what fully will be for those whose hope is placed in God. And here's the thing. Hope makes all the difference in our longing hearts. Hope. I want to talk about that hope for just a few more minutes before we uh, transition to communion this morning. What does that hope do for us, for a believer? Well, it it, 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 it it modifies, it reframes the suffering that we go through. It helps us put a new definition on why we suffer and what we're going through. For, for once, you know, there was this discouraged longing inside of me, and now there is an expected longing. The discouraged longing is, oh, I don't know if I will ever be happy. The encouraged longing, the expected longing is, now I know what my heart is longing for. And he uses the analogy of a woman in the pains of childbirth. Now imagine, some of you don't have to imagine. Some of you have lived the horror of infertility and the pain of longing to have a child of your own and the disappointment when month after month, it doesn't happen. I don't think unless you go through that, you can fully understand that. And for those of you that have gone through that or in the midst of that, I can't imagine the emptiness that comes over you as you ponder that situation. That's the discouraged longing And as a believer without hope, that's where we are, or as a person without hope. But imagine that couple discovers, oh, oh, could it be? Am I? Will I? They're expecting a child. And as the months go on, their expectation from fear of what could be to fear of what may be grows And as they are in the pains of childbirth, there is a lot of suffering going on for one of those parties. (laughs) And it's not the husband or the dad. And all of that pain is an expectant suffering. It is a suffering that is willingly and gladly, although not easily endured, for the hope of what will be. That's the picture Paul gives. That's that expectant longing that he talks about. In the NIV, it says, for the creation waits in eager expectation, groaning in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And Paul says, that's what we believers are like when we endure the sufferings of this life. We realize that, well, it's not gonna be the end of the story. It's just a a foretaste that this isn't all there is. There's more to come that's far better than this. And it's that anticipation is sweet stuff. And notice he says in verse 21, all creation anticipates the day when God's children, will, will, will when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. The longer I live, the greater my anticipation is Not for the past, not regret from losing the past. The longer I live, the greater anticipation I have for the future because I know I'm one day closer to when I will be fully what God intends me to be. I will fully be restored to the being that God intended me to be. That puts a whole different definition on suffering and going through this aging and life process that we all must go through because I hate to tell you, somebody said, None of us are going to get out of this life alive. <clears throat> oh, I mean, Jesus could come back, yes, that's one exception, but uh, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> but but here's the thing where where once there was a fearful heart, hope makes the difference here. Now I have a confident heart, now I I have the Holy Spirit within me, the Bible says, Paul writes here, as a foretaste of the future glory. And so we wait with eager hope for the day when God's going to give us our full rights as his adopted children. In other words, we are adopted now into the family and we know that we have an inheritance coming as adopted children, but that inheritance doesn't fully come until we leave this life and go into the next. And that's when our full inheritance is realized. We have the assurance and the reality of that now, but we still must suffer in this life and go through tough times so that that becomes all the more valuable to us. Before coming to Christ, the longing in my soul, the the yearning inside of me was, man, I better grab all the fun that I can now. I better experience life because if this is the end of the road, I want to get all the gusto now that I can. I want to experience whatever joys and thrills I can have now. But after becoming a believer, I have a longing that says, you know what? All the things that I think were going to satisfy me that have disappointed me, even if you find the love that you have, that love, may not last forever because life is terminal. And you love something, your heart will be broken. It's just the fact of life. And the more we put our loves here, and there's nothing wrong with loving those things, but if that's all your love is, is right here and now, if there's no hope for the future, then then you're in a sad state. Now the longing is for, I can't wait till tomorrow because that takes me one day closer to Eden. I'm going to ask the band to come up and the communion servers to prepare. And I want to talk about one other part of this idea of what hope is and how hope is, uh, makes all the difference in our longing hearts. So where once there was a discouraged longing or a discouraged heart, now I have an expectant longing. Once it was a fearful heart, now it's a confident heart. Once there was an anxious heart, now there's a patient heart. He says in verse 24, if we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we wait for it patiently and confidently. Confidently. We wait for the things that we know are worth the wait. We wait patiently when we know the payoff is worth the payoff. An amusement park, the best rides have the longest lines. You go to the bakery and your number is 100, or your number is 900 and they're calling 100. You'll wait patiently if you think the payoff is worth it all. And a lot of people are doing that these days. Whatever you believe heaven is like, it's not good enough. However good you imagine it can be, you're wrong. It's better than that. In fact, the scripture says so. Paul writes to the Corinthians, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That. That changes the whole meaning of suffering right there. Because if in this life there is no hope, we, Paul says, are most miserable. But, but, and not but, since there is a place that you know instinctively inside of you was made for the way things are supposed to be, whatever suffering we go through now, is just to make us dissatisfied for this life so we could be more satisfied for the life to come. And that puts a whole new meaning, and God intended it to be that way. One other thing about the theology of suffering. Paul said, and I alluded to this last week in his letter to the Philippians, he said, you know, I just want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection, all the good things. And I want to know him in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. You know, whatever suffering you go through in this life, God understands it. And how do I know that? Because Jesus suffered. God came to earth, was incarnated in the flesh, so that we who are now in the flesh know that God knows the pain you go through. The scripture says God is not unfamiliar with your suffering for Jesus has suffered in every way as you have. And when life doesn't go the way you thought it should and when the love you had has gone and when the disease is coming your way and when you go through the darkest days that this life can offer you, that is not the end of the story for you and in those dark days we say God now I know a little more what Jesus did for me Jesus you did this for me knowing what it was going to be like we don't choose the suffering that we go through but Jesus chose the suffering that he went through and he chose it so that you And go through the suffering you go through knowing that that's not the end of the story here this week for those who are traditionalists it's the beginning of lent and you may go and find a priest who will put ashes on your forehead and say these words from dust you have come and to dust you shall return And it is a stark and sober reminder to the fact that this life isn't all there is. And we identify over these weeks with the last days of Jesus, the passion of Christ, the sufferings of Christ. Why is it important that we do that? It's important that we know that there's a God who knows the suffering that you go through. And at the end of Lent, it's called Good Friday the darkest day in human history. And somehow we've spun to call it Good Friday. But you know what? That's a proper term, as ironic as it is, that the day Jesus died was called Good Friday and it wasn't good for him. And yet, and yet, he called it good. Because he said, I finished the work. I've done it. Father, forgive them. Good Friday became Good Friday after Sunday because Sunday was the day Jesus said that that death and suffering and dying is not the final story any longer. And you now have hope in the suffering you go through. And I don't wish that on anybody, myself especially. (laughs) But we will all suffer and indeed we do. And now in the suffering times of life we say Jesus thank you because you suffered for me I'm willing to suffer for you I'm willing God to not put all my hopes in this basket because there's a better place for me to place my hope and that makes all the difference in the world and that day that Friday that ward finally passed away after he lingered for several days and he breathed his last it was sad yes but we were sad for losing him but to be honest with you we were not sad because we knew that that body was finally he was liberated he was freed he was then now as he fully should be and we can celebrate that and we all celebrate that and those of you that are grieving it's good to grieve and you should And it's okay. But let scripture just do a little bit of reframing in your thinking of what that grief means. You have greater reason now to look forward, greater reason to hope than you had before. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, thank you so much for helping us to understand some of the deepest things that we must face in life the meaning of suffering, the reason for suffering, and even the good that can come from suffering, that you can cause all things to work together for good because you allow suffering to do its work in us, that we might long for the place that you have made for every one of us. And if there's anyone here this morning that just doesn't hasn't yet said, yeah, I want to put my hope in God. I want to put my trust in Jesus. I want to believe that God... Has, understands me and knows me and there's a God in heaven that has, has, has put all of this in place and has a place for me and he said I have a place and I will come back to take you to that place so God may that person and may, may they say as, as, as we have all can say God please forgive me if you can forgive the people that, that betrayed you that falsely accused you That crucified you. If you can forgive them, we believe you can forgive me. And Jesus, I need that. I need that. God, I put myself on the curb of life, begging for your grace and mercy to reclaim me as your own. I give myself to you, God. Take me and make me. Restore me to the person that you have intended me to be. And I long for the day when I will fully and finally be completely restored. In Jesus' name.